desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite wordsmith. This is episode 45 with Donna Everhart. Her new novel, The Saints of Swallow Hill, is an ode to the South and a love letter to longleaf pine trees. The story takes us to a turpentine camp during the Depression era. The characters suffer, and Donna shares how steeped in reality that suffering was. We begin by talking about how Donna ended up on this path. Well, I think um, for me, it seems like my path to this writing career that I'm in right now was a very meandering kind of path. Mm. And and I say that because there are so many writers out there um, that I've heard say, oh, I've always known that I wanted to write. I knew that I wanted to write ever since I was a little boy or a little girl. Mm-hmm. And for me, it, it wasn't really like that. I was first and foremost a reader. And probably the very first time I ever thought about writing was when I was about 18 years old. But it was a fly by the seat of my pants kind of effort. And I was immature, didn't know what I was doing. And I just ended up having that fleeting thought and yeah. never really thought about it again. And then life happens, you know, you get married, you, you go to work and you pay bills. And I really did not think again about anything to do with writing until I was probably in my early 30s. Mm believe it. <laughs> what was the seed in your early 30s? What was the impetus? I read Southern fiction for the first time, and those books were Kay Gibbons' uh, novel, Ellen Foster, and mm. Dorothy Allison's novel, Bastard Out of Carolina. They were the books that, for the first time, I was like, no, these people sound like me, you know, as I'm reading the, the narrative and the dialogue. And I was just thoroughly intrigued. And for some reason, I started thinking then, if I ever wrote a book, I would want to write something like this. In that voice. Yes. Yes, to recognize yourself in literature is a real gift, I think, to see yeah. yourself, see your perspective or your people to identify is wonderful. And I think that really, it comes across in this book, the South is definitely, it all takes place there. And you have kind of a, I feel like it's, it's a little bit of a love letter in some ways to this region, maybe more specifically to the trees of the region. I felt you really cared deeply. You gave that to your characters anyway, a real, a real deep caring and touched with a little bit of sadness. You know, there's this idea that the trees um, are there generationally, they provide generationally, and yet they can be overworked. They can be depleted, just like people. Exactly, exactly. And you're hitting the nail on the head. When I was writing this book, and I 
had landed on this whole concept of our industry um, in the South and um, for North Carolina, it, we were the top producer in the world of this product known as Naval Stores, which I was ignorant to. And I'm a, you know, born and raised in North Carolina. Yeah. But I learned that a lot of people did not know about this industry. And this book has become my ode to the South, you know, to my home state of North Carolina, but also to that whole swath of region that had these long leaf pines. And you also hit the nail on the head when it, if, if my love that grew from writing this book um, towards these trees shows, Mm-hmm. then I've, I've done my work because I truly came to care about these trees. I have a picture of me hugging the oldest longleaf pine tree in the world. And mm-hmm. it's right here, like an hour away from me. And they, each year in April, they have something called Party for the Pine. Because this pine tree is literally 474 years old, going to be 475 years this year. And according to the Nature Conservancy, it's the oldest living longleaf pine in the world. Well, they are witnesses to the brief time that we're on Earth, you know, the ones that stand for generation after generation. The people in this story are very connected to the trees. And it's interesting that you've that you rooted this in something historical, that this is a truth. Um, and yet it is kind of lost. Like you said, you've spent your whole life in this region. And it was, you know, within a generation, that life, that um, dependency on the trees and that particular industry is just lost to the ether. What did you tap into to rediscover this? How did this happen? You know, for me, when I ran across the term naval stores. I I literally remember thinking, what the heck is that? Which was simply the extraction of pine resin from the longleaf pine tree, which was then in turn distilled into these products that were used to waterproof the tall sail ships that used to be out on the seas in the 1700s through the late 1800s. And then when iron and steel came in to the picture and replaced those boats, by that time, turpentine versus the tar and the pitch that was used to waterproof the boats, but turpentine had taken off as a huge, huge product, not only probably for the industry, like with paint, varnish, you know, and things like that, linoleum, soap, um, but as a medicinal remedy. I mean, people, you know, doing all kinds of crazy stuff when it came to using that was in my That was in my notes because a sev- several times I was like, for snake bites? Wait. So you have in your, in the storyline, turpentine that does get kind of used for all that ails you. And, uh, I had not heard of that. So that that's real. That's something you saw in, in reading about it. Everything from like a cough to a rash to internal problems that you Mm -hmm. might be having with your, you know, digestive system, which really, you know, they said medicinal use with dubious results. (laughs) That's funny. That's really funny. Well, um, I wanted to tell you that the first place I saw your book was on Sue Peterson's Facebook page. 
so it's funny because I had reached out to Sue and said, well, what would you ask Donna? And she asked about where did this idea for the turpentine camps, what research were you doing and how did that get your wheels turning? Which I think mm-hmm. is the real question, right? Not just how'd you hear about this, but yeah. how, why did it get your wheels turning? Because this is a very character driven story. It's not just about yeah. Yeah. the conditions that they're in. So, um, and, and you were right to bring up about the turpentine camps because the turpentine camps existed all the way back through to that time frame that I was talking about in the 1700s. Mm-hmm. But as that industry waned and the turpentine became well known for the medicinal purposes and all of the other industrial uses that it had, these camps had sprung up and continued to do more or less like what I mentioned in the story, migrate south, like the birds, because the use of the longleaf pine trees, you know, they were decimated. So everybody kept just kind of moving south. But these turpentine camps had sprung up. And yet again, it was something I had heard of lumber labor camps, coal mining camps, and Mm -hmm. all of those types of work environments. But I had never heard of the turpentine camp. And that was my sort of moment when I said this, especially when I read about how brutal they were, this is the setting that I need. And then who am I going to put into this setting? And I knew that I wanted to write a story from the perspective of uh, being two narrators and I wanted it to be a male and a female. And as I was thinking about this turpentine camp, I just knew that I'm always going to put my characters into challenging situations. I'm not going to write about, you know, easy stories or easy backgrounds that they may have. I want them to be suffering. I hate to say it, but it's true. <laughs> you know, I want them to suffer. And I want them to find their way out of that. For Dell. Delwood Reese, one of my main characters, he is uh, obviously not uh, living his life in the best way possible. When we meet Dell, you might not like him very much, and that's okay. That's on purpose. The first time we meet Dell, you're so right. You don't instantly love him. He is a womanizer. He's an attractive man, and he uses his attractiveness to just flip from one illicit relationship to another, not putting down roots, not committing in any way, just enjoying lots of different women. That's right. Let's pause right there on that description of Dell and listen to a few minutes from the beginning of the audiobook when Dell's womanizing is in full swing. This is from The Saints of Swallow Hill, written by Donna Everhart, produced by Tantor Audio, a division of recorded books, and narrated by Amy Melissa Bentley, who has performed over 200 audiobooks. She has an Audiophile Earphones Award and has a real gift for dialects from Russian to New York to the Southern American you're about to hear. Dell had come to Sutton's farm with two dollars, the clothes on his back, a couple cans of Vienna sausages, his rifle, and Melody, the harmonica that had been his granddaddy's. He'd bundled all of it together using his extra pants and shirt, with a stick stuck through the tied knot, a 
a real hobo-looking get-up. He didn't need much know-how. He was a man of simple means, always had been. Besides, he was glad, considering the times, he didn't have a family to provide for. Mo Sutton grew acres upon acres of tobacco, alongside vast cornfields. Dell had gazed across the fields, saw the sharecropper shacks and the sharecropper wives tending their small kitchen gardens, hanging out the Monday wash, caring for a passel of youngins running around barefoot, and thought maybe he could stay here a while. It was peaceful enough, the scenery not so bad. Mo Sutton seemed like he was doing all right, despite the country's circumstances. Maybe it would work out fine. It wasn't long after he'd been hired on, a day or two at the most. Baker's wife, Sarah, smiled kindly at him and invited him to eat after seeing him sitting in the doorway of his little abode, all by his lonesome, puffing a soft, sweet tune on Melody. The Bakers were right beside him, each family taking one of the shanty houses set in a row facing the cornfields. Sarah said, Come have some supper. It was the standard poor man's meal. Fried potatoes, hot dogs, and biscuits. But they also had some fresh corn and tomatoes. She served the food on mismatched, chipped dishes. And when she set a plate in front of him, she turned it to hide the imperfection. She sure was easy on the eyes. Her fingertips brushed Dell's as she passed what was meant to be butter, but they all knew it was really lard tinted yellow with salt added. Sarah Baker had a pouty mouth and large breasts that jiggled without the benefit of an undergarment beneath the flour sack material of her homespun dress. He caught her staring at him several times, always dropping her eyes when he glanced her way. The two children, a boy of four and another baby boy, gawked at him with big blue orbs clear as the summer sky. Dell winked, and the older boy giggled. Next day, he'd seen Tuttle's wife, Bertice. She was fine-boned, quite timid in nature, a thin woman with a thin mouth. She carried a baby boy about on her hips, while another child, a boy too, clung to her apron. She poured Tuttle a cup of chicory coffee out on the porch, and as Dell made his way by, Tuttle called out, Come have you a cup, Dell. Thank you kindly. He climbed the steps and sat across from the man who constantly held a toothpick in the corner of his mouth and had a tendency to make odd sounds, like he was trying to spit something out. Bertice generally kept her eyes averted, but her reserved nature didn't last long, not when Dell began to work his charm. Because if there was any woman anywhere within eyesight of him, it was as if he couldn't help himself. He had to know, what was she like? Um, the other main character that you're telling the story through is Raylin, a woman. And in the beginning, she's married to a man named Warren. Warren is a little older and kind of, well, at one point she says he's just impatient and he's not thinking of outcomes. That's right. Um, this is a real juxtaposition eventually 
to Dell because we find out that Dell is very careful and methodical. And that gets me to this idea of safe, the word safe. I loved how you incorporated the idea of feeling safe um, in all of your characters. Like Raylin, from the very beginning, uh, she, we know that she's sort of forced after a tragedy to disguise herself and run from the life she's in. And this is how she ends up crossing paths with Dell eventually. And part of it that she says right then is that she just doesn't know what she'll do. You know, she's going to stay disguised until she feels safe. That's exactly um, right. I liked the way you played with this idea of safe in an environment and in a story that really has hard, brutally hardworking people, you know, in conditions that are brutal. But I like your concepts of safe and where you threaded the idea of safety through the story, I thought was really powerful. And, and in some way, we're all looking for that, you know, I mean, in our own lives. And so that comes from the whole, when we're, we're talking about, you know, what were you wanting to write about as far as your characters and mm -hmm. uh, how did you come up with this? And I thought about, well, the worst thing that can happen to people is to have this sense of instability, of hardship, like during the depression era, there is that, where's my next meal coming from? Right. You know, how am I going to feed my children or how, you know, I'm out here in the environment with no home. And so, you know, what, the way I've talked about these two characters is that they experience these life altering events that force them into a situation where they are having to flee, so to speak. That's why the first part of the book, you know, it's broken into three parts. And those three parts relate to birds, yes. right? So flight, swallow hill, and then nest. Um, and it was all related to that name of swallow hill, which of course comes from the bird, the swallow, but there's the little flip on it in the story that one of the characters says. You write so well in the dialect. I could just hear those characters in that accent. I thought and that must be very difficult to do, but you really did capture that. Yeah. So what you're talking about is, um, is it about the barn swallows nesting in the building or because what goes on around here is hard to swallow. And that's right. <laughs> yeah. And that came from Nolan, who's one of He also in that part talks really about another thing that I have to do is, has to do with instability and in that the workers in the camp are not really even protected by the law of the land, mm -hmm. that the bosses are a law unto themselves. The camp is it's like a dark company town. You know, there are churches and schools and juke joints, but it's really set up to put the worker farther behind versus improving themselves and ever, ever getting out. It's this cycle of dependency on the job. They're indebted, mm -hmm. um, really just living then meal to meal. And the shacks that they live in, the way you describe the shacks are just so abysmal. You know, it's such a, it's such a hard life. And I, I wondered how much of that you drew from historical research, how, how much of that was true. Every bit of it. If you can believe it, everything from the debt peonage system to the condition of the housing that was offered to the structure of how the camp is set up as almost like a little self-contained little, little town, all of that is real. And 
even down to the sweatbox, if you can believe it, which was used as an incentive for a form of punishment and an incentive for people to meet their quotas. The woods riders, those people were real. There were actually men who rode horses in the woods and kept up with quotas. And the camp uh, commissary owners would automatically increase pricing on their products. And then the knowing that the workers were only going to be paid so much. And if, if a camp worker said, well, this is not for me any longer, I'm out of here, they could be hunted down and they could be killed and nobody would ever know. They would hide the bodies. Yeah, one of your, one of your characters is very dark. You call him Crow. Uh, he wears a crow feather in his hat. And he's, he's racist, but he's also very sadistic. He's, he's a malicious man. He does things just to hurt others. Well, you know, he uses the sweat box you were just talking about as a form of he will put someone in this box knowing they could die there or at least suffer greatly. There's not anything really redeeming about him. I'm trying to think if you ever made him sympathetic. He's just a dark guy. And I guess that was the best way to tell that part of the story, right? Like, how else do you embody? How did human beings do this to each other if you don't have a character like Crow? Yeah. Uh, so that's Elijah Sweeney, a.k.a. Crow. And uh, there was one little snippet of something in the book. Um, he cared about the trees. Yes. Did you? not want you yeah. to damage the trees. And he taught Dell about that term called crown shyness. And that's actually real, where if you look up at the canopy of trees and there's different trees around, they will grow in a certain pattern to kind of shy away from one another so that they don't exchange disease for one thing. You know, I thought about him and I said, okay, because I also learned by reading uh, a little bit of psychology papers about people who were just hateful. And what I learned is that sometimes there doesn't have to be a reason why they are the way they are. So, you know, we're always looking for a reason as yeah. why is he like that? Why would he be like, why would she be like that? Right. And unfortunately, sometimes there's just not a reason. Well, I like that you brought up that he cared so much about the trees, because I do think that conversation you were just talking about is, is one of the ways he's, he's explaining to Dell his version of racism, his ideas about keeping people separate. He uses the trees, to, he uses nature to justify some very unnatural ideas about humanity. Wow. And so it's, he's twisted it in a way. Um, but yeah, I think, I think in, at some point in the book, a character says he loves the trees maybe more than himself. You know? That's right. Yes, you're absolutely right. He used it to his advantage to sort of twist it to suit his needs. One of the things I liked about your two main characters or that I thought was thematic is that they both have this, at different points, they have out-of-body experiences. It's a near-death experience for both of them. And the reader gets to kind of hear their thoughts about what's happening to them. And especially with Ray Lynn, 
she brings up this idea of safety again, that heaven is, is she feels comforted and safe in this out-of-body experience. And she, she equates those two things, safety and heaven. I thought it was so beautiful the way you wrote about heaven and the other woman that's taking care of her and feeling safe in that moment. And I, I guess I wondered really just where that came from for you. Well, it's going to sound kind of uh, morbid, maybe, but I sat by my mother's bedside for 18 days mm. and watched her leave. Mm. And uh, so Raylan's experience is born of that, because mm. once you do that, you sort of sense what happens with the body. I knew what was happening with my mother. She was in hospice, but I knew what was happening with her body. And that scene is drawn from that experience because I knew that she knew where she was and what was happening and that all she had to do was let go. And, you know, with Ray Lynn, she's at the precipice. Yeah. Yes. And there's another person in the room with her as well. There's someone sitting vigil with her. Mm-hmm. Me, it was also how, how much comfort other people can bring us, right? How much a gift to us in our darkest times other people can be. We know when Ray Lynn is in those moments, you know, that she's thinking of as heaven, And she's describing what the things that are happening to her that are so good and so soothing and calming to her. We know that's Cornelia. We know that's her. She's married to the other kind of bully. His cruelty is more self-motivated, not outwardly hate motivated, but he's still a pretty despicable guy. And I think he's still dangerous. And you, you establish very well that his wife fears him. And again, there's this idea that she's not safe. That's the situation that is, is that she needs to flee from, that she needs to escape. So there's a couple places where I think characters are trapped, um, sometimes literally trapped, but yeah. also, you know, you're, you're playing with this idea of, of breaking free from something or escaping from something that is unsafe on multiple levels. Yeah. The funny part about that, too, is that in the section of the book called Flight, they are both, you know, Dell and Ray Lynn are both in this concept or mindset that they're, you know, they're fleeing from danger. And it's that proverbial jump from the frying pan into the fire. Because if they thought that Swallow Hill was going to be a haven, you know, it is not. And it goes from bad to worse. So now they're still struggling, you know, to regain this sense of stability and safety. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Cornelia's nemesis, of course, her husband, Otis, he's petrified. He's got a secret yes. that he is just so afraid he would because it would be mortifying to him if anyone found out his secret. I think you have a great sense of humor that comes through in this story because even in the, um, even in Dale's womanizing in the beginning, you know his 
his near-death experience leads him, um, oh, how did you say it? He suddenly can't rise to the occasion. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to have some moments of levity in there, you know, and you can find that. Yeah. You can find that in their interactions, the characters' interactions with one another. It's just sprinkled kind of throughout the book. I really appreciated and enjoyed that. And I think that's part of that's part of life. People should know there's a nice, there's a nice slow build of of tension between these characters where you're you're not sure how it will play out. I think I think it's because you do have them suffering. But you do have this glimmer of hope and this, this hint of, is there something different about her that is what he's been looking for? And can she recover from her past hurts? And so it's a nice, slow tension. And the, the reader is, I was just rooting for them. I am happy to hear you say that because that is exactly what I was trying to do. Her reticence. And even his reticence, because yeah. he's lost his confidence. He's kind of lost his mojo. So yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the both of them afraid of a lot of things, right. afraid of what's going to happen in the future. They mm-hmm. have no idea where they're going to end up. Everything's in flux. And, and so, but they are reluctant, you know, the both of them. And I just wanted to, I like to ask authors, if you had to explain to somebody what your, what's essential to you, what are some essential things that you value, what would you say? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I mean, you know, we have our families, we have our loved ones, and of course they are essential, but I also like to go beyond that, you know, and meet new people and connect to new people. And I like that I can do that through writing a story like this. Yeah, that's a great answer. I think too, you're the kind of writing that you do connects you to new people, but also like in this story anyway, it connects you to your past. Exactly. You're currently just talking to you. You are rooted in this region of the country. It's, it's part of your, part of who you are. And yeah, this storytelling actually carries forward something people wouldn't know, wouldn't know about otherwise, right? That would be lost otherwise. Well, I've had a lot of people um, who are are talking about the fact that they're from the Tar Heel State say, I never knew that this is where the original term Tar Heel came from. Mm. And so to be able to do that, for me, you know, was just, again, like I said at the beginning, I feel like it's an ode to my home state mm-hmm. um, and to the South in general. Start the book with something, a toast. That's right. If I'm not mistaken, it was written in 1945. So it's almost 80 years old, but it was that very first line. Here's to the land of the longleaf pine. Let's close the episode with that toast to the Old North State. It's included in the audiobook, performed by narrator Amy Melissa Bentley. 
Here's to the land of the long-leaf pine, the summer land where the sun doth shine, where the weak grow strong and the strong grow great. Here's to down home, the old north state. Thanks to Vita at Kensington Books for the advanced reader copy of The Saints of Swallow Hill. For Desideratum listeners, Kensington generously provides the discount code DP20 to save 20% across their incredible library. Just enter DP20 at checkout at kensingtonbooks.com. Also, please look for The Saints of Swallow Hill on Libro FM. The audiobook, produced by Tantor Audio, a division of Recorded Books Audio, is available now. I'll put the Desideratum podcast affiliate link with Libro FM in the show notes and on the link tree in all our social media accounts. Using that affiliate link supports the podcast and a local bookstore of your choice at Libro FM. This has been episode 45. As always, thank you for listening.